Hi folks, how are you? Um, Merry Christmas. Uh, it's official. I never quite know when you when's too late to say it, but as I am recording this, it is the 27th of December. It's definitely not too late. Um, but I hope you're well. I hope you've had a safe and joyful festive season so far and I send you lots of well wishes and love and gratitude actually for taking the time to listen to another episode of my Pride and Joy soundtrack and my weekly podcast where I dive into the creative minds of people from the world of film, TV and music, be that be directors, writers, producers, composers, actors, all sorts. Um, and my latest guest on soundtracking, I'm so excited to share this with you, is without a doubt one of the most exciting fresh talents at work in the industry today. She is Julia Ducourneau and she burst into the popular consciousness with Raw and she follows it up with the equally scintillating Titan, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Now, I don't want to tell you too much about it as it kind of defies a fleeting summary, if I'm honest. But suffice to say, it absolutely blew me away and really stayed with me for a long time. And I highly advise you try and go and see it at your local cinema if you feel safe in doing so. Titan is scored by Jim Williams, who also worked with Julia on Raw. And it's with Jim's cue from the film that will begin ending from Kiss. I'm so great. I'm so I'm so grateful and excited to have you on on the podcast because I'm I just think you're an incredible filmmaker and uh, and it's a real honor to have you on soundtrack. And so thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. This podcast is about music, and I mean, if we just talk about uh, Titan to start with, with regards to how how you've used music and how music is part of this narrative, it's so clever and powerful and emotional and evocative it's just used in lots of different brilliant ways um, and so I wanted to ask if when you're writing the script you have music in mind you have music that's already part of the characters part of the story part of the themes in your head yeah absolutely I mean all the songs uh, that are in the film were already written in the script yeah. I listened to them as I was uh, writing my scenes and um, on and on. And then I also uh, put them on sets. I like to put music on set very much. I think it sets a very good mood. It's not always easy for the sound guys, yeah. but that's something that for the actors are really, is, really, um, is really good and for the crew as well. And uh, yeah, all of them I had chosen carefully. And so 
the, the, the joke in that is that I wrote all like all these scenes with these songs and like for me it was only these songs and then I talk with my musical supervisor <laughs> and uh, I go yeah so I'm gonna need that and that's quite a long list I think there are at least six or seven songs or something yeah. uh, in the film it's quite a long list and some of them were major hits and uh and it was like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna need that and he says yeah like forward for like one minute each I'm like no no full song <laughs> and he goes what <laughs> I was like no I swear I, I need them and he thought I was kidding and I saw him becoming white you know with a lot of sweat on his temples and all that he was like really uneasy and feeling well and and he was like but what if I can't and all that I mean it's complicated I'm like well, that's the only mm. ones I want. There is, I'm sorry, <laughs> there is no other way. And he did like a tremendous job, to be honest. I don't even know how he managed. I don't know who he, he sold like maybe one of his limbs or something. I don't know how he managed to get all of them entire, in the entire time of the song for the film is a wonder to me, but he did, he did brilliantly. <laughs> wow. Well, listen, I, I actually, I don't want to talk too much about the what the film, the, the kind of contents of the film, really, because I think that it's it's an experience that I really want people to to kind of go in blind experiencing because I think that it's so powerful doing that. So I kind of, I have this occasionally with filmmakers where I don't really want to talk about too much to give anything away because the experience is so much part of the, the storytelling and the, the experience of this particular film, I think, as well. So I hope you don't mind that I, we don't kind of go into too much detail about the nuts and bolts of the uh-huh. film. Part of the pun. Oh, believe me, I'm happy about it. I'm glad. <laughs> but one, but one thing that I thought would be kind of nice to talk about, which isn't really given too much away, because it's a love story. It's it's about it's about the the lack of love, the need of love, discovering love. Love's like kind of this this constantly moving beast in a way as well. And I feel like this this story really captures that and terms of what we're searching for, what we're lacking and what we need. Yeah, that's true. Do you um, want me to rebound on that? <laughs> that yeah, so that wasn't really a question at you. I do, this is another <laughs> bad habit of mine where it's not really a question. I'm just like, you know, enthusing at you about this brilliant film. But I, I, I did, I was watching some interviews with you and I was interested to find out that partly it was almost written backwards from a, from a nightmare that you had about kind of giving birth to her. Will you t- tell me the story if, if, you, if you don't mind sharing? I can tell you the story, but the first thing I'm going to say is that this is partly untrue okay. in the sense that I did have this nightmare, but I, I once, the first time I think I said that in an interview, I specifically told the journalist, but I had this nightmare. With, but you have to understand that the process of uh, going from uh, having like a remote slight idea of something you could do to the moment where you actually start writing it is quite long and it's really a process of connecting the dots yeah. between various ideas, nightmares, dreams, images, scenes, desires, whatever you name it, but it's all of that. So this nightmare is really just a dot mm-hmm. in this process. Yeah, um, It's a dot that very much influenced my uh, work on prosthetics and my work with also uh, the CGI. Mm-hmm. Because in this nightmare, I give birth to, um, um, on the floor of a bathroom, the bathrooms are very important in my film, <laughs> and uh, on the floor of the bathroom, I give birth to um, um, how do you, uh, car engine pieces, yeah. you know, car engine parts. 
And I was very traumatized by that nightmare on various levels. And I did it in a very um, yeah, recurring way. But I think like at the same time, it was like obviously questioning um, what I thought I had in me, what, uh, this, the, 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 this collision between and pure act of life and this dead material was very, very disturbing to me. Yeah. That I thought, okay, that's a nightmare. But every time I woke up, I thought, that's a good image. I like this image. I think there is something to it and yeah. I want to do something with it. And this is something I've done like years before I started even like I, even doing raw. I mean, it's a very long, uh, long lasting thing. And this nightmare I told to my, um, to my makeup supervisor, a special effect makeup supervisor, and I described it to him and stuff. And that's where we starting uh, getting into the details, for example, of the fluid, like what kind of fluid is there in your yeah. nightmare? And we started with, uh, yeah, something that is more like a foam, something that is um, dark, like oil, but it has to be really oily. It has to shimmer a little bit. And, and the thing with the, the placenta as well, yeah, we, it's really something that became a reference um, uh, with my uh, special effects supervisor. That's why it's, interest, it's interesting, yeah. I think. Would you say that you're, the, the, the way that you work with music, well, I want to talk about some specific tracks and also working with Jim Williams, has, yeah. has kind of changed from making Raw to making this film? Has it been a, kind of, is it, has it been a, has it been a different journey with music from, from one film to the other? Not really, except that I think I'm going deeper in my relationship with music, with Titan, for the simple reason that um, with Titan, because it's not a very chatty film, is it? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, music and dancing are really one of my biggest tools in order to uh, tell my story and to uh, develop the stakes between my characters. And... Dancing and music um, in Titan actually play a part in the development of the narration. It's like they say something that you did not know before you entered that scene. Mm. Whereas in Raw, it was a bit more cosmetic. I mean, it was a bit more like for a party. Uh, you know, I, actually, it was a lot of parties. And when she's maybe less for when she's dancing in front of the mirror on plus put que toutes les putes, uh, this said something. This had something to be um, to be reckoned with this specific music, but the rest was a bit cosmetic. And here, I really, I really went uh, in the, the idea that not only the mood of the song was important, but the lyrics were also incredibly important. And in every moment where you have a song that is often linked to dancing or to killing, it says something that is in my character. Almost like my character is trying to say, but the music says it's for the character. Like, for example, when she's doing the, the killing spree in the house, I put Caterina Caselli, Nessuno mi può giudicare nemmeno tu, which means no one can judge me and even less you. And that's something that for me, Alexia says to the audience. Yeah. La verità mi fa male. La verità mi fa male, lo sai. Nessuno mi può giudicare, nemmeno tu. La verità mi fa male, lo so. Lo so che ho sbagliato una volta. 
su come chi lo sa perché ognuno ha il diritto di vivere come può la verità che fa male lo so per questo una cosa mi piace quell'altra no la verità che fa male lo so se sono tornata a te ti basta sapere che ho visto la differenza fra lui e te ed ho scelto She finds it hard to communicate, doesn't she? That's the thing. It's almost her way of communicating in a way. It does help in the communication for the with the audience and in between the characters as well. Like, for example, the lyrics of Future Island's Lighthouse when they're dancing together are incredibly important because one, the entire song is almost all about my scene. It's actually very uncanny the way it fits. And for me, there is this thing with him repeating on and on. It's not you. It's not you like this and and for me this this moment uh between them when they're dancing together is a moment where they can actually see each other for who they are for the first time of the film so this thing when he says it's not you it's almost like he um dismisses the ghost of his son like it's not my son it's not you and he's looking at someone else you know yeah. for the first time this is where we were when i showed like Wayfaring Stranger the same and well that's so clever the way that you you know even when the film starts and you you hear you hear it and then it's that wonderful mix that you kind of go into the you think it's the sound of the engine then you realize that it's child in the back of the car making the kind of engine noise like kids do but then the way that you use that 16 horsepower version at the start of the film and then we come to another part of the film and you have Lisa Abbott doing a version of it as well and it's so clever it's so brilliant well it's really like again i mean these these versions are echoes of each other like at the beginning i used um the the 16 horsepowers version as a way to enhance her loneliness and the fact that that she does not belong to this very domestic world with the father driving and all that and that there is something that she's already out you know she's already yeah alone even as a child and it obviously goes with the fact that her father ignores her like in a very uh, blatant way i'm just a boy fair and stranger traveling through a world of woe ain't no sickness torn or danger in that bright land to which i go i'm going there to see my father at the end for me um taking the song of this very um yeah sad moment that she had with her father before in the car making feeling feeling her alone 
and to to put it at a moment moment where for me she's when she's dancing as Adrian, the collision between all her identities and all her experience make her so complete. It becomes something that is very much um, like she owns herself for the first time of the film. And that's why I asked for a very uh, sensual, crooner-like um, version of it that is, and that still has, by the way, a bit of banjo to remind of the 16 horsepower <laughs> a little bit. Um, that's for that's uh, that's Jim touch. He said, "No, we need a little bit of banjo." Although <laughs> he was right, like super right. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. Ain't no sickness, toil, no danger. not enough banjo in the world julia i agree with you <laughs> <laughs> i agree with you maybe there will be more in my next one by the way just big oh. scoop <laughs> i look forward to it go on so you were saying about jim and his he, he was right yeah i love I, I do love working with jim honestly i mean he has a sound jim you know what i mean he has a sound yeah and I, I relate to it so much we work a lot like when we do uh, the score we're really like um uh, we're talking every day, you know, and he submits things to me every day and we correct it every day. And we exchange a lot, a lot, a lot on the instruments that he uses, the voices that he uses uh, on the feels, the feel of the of the of the score and all that. And for me, when I start with him, I already have an idea of the evolution of the music through the film. That's mm. I wanted to start with something that was quite animalistic almost atonal with a lot of percussion, like heavy drums, uh, in order to you know, uh, to talk to uh, something that is, you know, buried inside somehow, very animalistic. was going to something very sacred that could make the link with the Jean-Sébastien Bach piece from the Evangelical Chronic to St. Matthew. And so I told him that. I told him I want bells because I wanted to, to have metallic sound. 
in in the score and also um i told him i wanted to have organs because i love the organs he used on raw and i wanted to have it uh, to have it again just like uh, basically the the, the 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 thread of it if you mm. wish like and then yeah and then it was re it's really like I don't know he I don't know if we have this honestly I don't know if we have like the same tastes or if we are so in tune or if he's so in tune I don't know but it feels like he understands very much the gothic aspect of things in my film yeah. and yet uh, sometimes like almost uh uh, naive in terms of emotions, you know, uh, aspect of it as well. So I don't know. It's 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 a very good match between us. I really like working with him. I mean, I'm such a fan of his work. I think, yeah, apart from the work that he's done with yourself, Beast was just a, a, incredible and Kill List and a field in England, working with Ben Wheatley as he has over the years and stuff. Just, I mean, that field in England, the whole soundscape of that film is just extraordinary. <laughs>
did you how did you start working with him? How did how did this this wonderful synergy between you and Jim start start? That's the thing. It's like so we were in edit for Raw, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a composer yet. So um, for Raw, because I loved, I, I really like Ben Whitley's work very much, and because I do like Ben Whitley's work, just you know, as a, as a witness of, of of the feeling I wanted to go with, we had put the soundtrack of Killist and the Field in England on Raw. Okay, you know, just to give a feel of it. But I obviously I was not expecting to where I didn't even know who Jim was, you know, so I put this on my film. And then I talked to my producer and he says, but why don't you call the composer? I'm like, I don't know. He's British. He doesn't know who I am. Why would he give a fuck, you know, about me? I mean, (laughs) I was like fangirling like crazy, you know, (laughs) And, uh, and we ended up calling him and he was very nice. He came to Paris to see an edit of Raw, which was not finished, by the way, the edit. And, uh, and then we had lunch and he was like, yeah, okay, I'd like to do it. he saw was with his own oh, music of Ben Whitley's films that's crazy did he see that as a good thing or a bad thing was he was it kind of like oh is, does that make it harder for him or no I think he was quite flattered yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you kept it on there as well so it's kind of not you know not to just so yeah we've edited the film with no music no we've edited with your music which is amazing yeah. there's there's some really um some really beautiful moments as well in terms of the stillness of things as well, because I feel like that's a really important thing for you as well is to you appreciate and understand the the importance of silence and the importance of kind of breath and timing and things like that. Is that something you think about at script stage, you know, in terms of where those moments need to come and, or is that something that you feel around edit? It's both because when you write scenes, especially when there are almost no dialogues, you know that, you know, you know the, the impact the silence is going to have and all that. So you know where you're going to put songs or score and you know when you should abstain. But to be honest, I mean, I, at the end, I did not expect to have so many songs in my film. I mean, I put them in the, in the writing and all that, but you have to understand that. My, I think my script was like 100 pages or 90 pages, something like that. And the first edit was two hours, 48 minutes, like the rough edit, mm-hmm. okay? No, but it was barely an edit. It was just like scene by scene by scene by scene. And when you have like, I don't know, six or seven songs over two hours and 48 minutes, it's okay. It doesn't feel like there is a lot of music. But when you get to the edit that is 145, 
I mean, one now I'm one forty years, forty five something. Then all of a sudden, the music takes a lot of importance, like a lot. Mm-hmm. And this is when I panicked a little bit because I thought, <laughs> damn there's not going to be enough silence. I mean, when are we going to breathe? Because I have to add the score mm-hmm. over that, you know? Yeah. And how that, that's also a huge work. Like I like big scores. I like something, you know, with percussions, organs, bells, all that. I like big things, yeah. but the songs were already big. So how do you make things, you know, balance each other? That was a, a quite of a, yeah, quite a mindfuck, but we managed and, uh, but in the end, I think like maybe I could have one silence more. That's the next film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the band, with the banjos. Um, with the banjos it, yeah. It's so great to chat to you. I'm genuinely just very excited to see what's next and, and you know, encourage everybody to go and, and see and, and seek out uh, Titan and, and also Raw, go back and watch Raw as well. And it's so great to get the chance to chat to you. Thank you, Edith. From Jim Williams' score to Titan, that's Forest Fire, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Julia Ducourneau. My huge thanks to Julia for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Titan is in cinemas now. If you feel safe, please go and see it and just be prepared for a proper physical experience. Um, Jim's score is available via Kazakh Productions under exclusive licence to Sony Music Entertainment. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my many chats with the aforementioned Ben Wheatley. Merry Christmas, Ben. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter too to keep up to date with what we've got going on. Next up, we'll be discussing the electrical life of Louis Wayne, which, as we speak, is in cinemas. And I highly recommend that you go and check it out. We're joined by writer-director Will Sharp and his brother Arthur, who composed the score. As well as starring in the film, Benedict Cumberbatch also helped produce it. Here's a clip of Will revealing what he was like to work with. I mean, it was a really lovely collaboration with Benedict. And I think as soon as we started talking about it, I felt like we were on the same page. We wanted to tell an empathetic story. I could tell that he also really loved this guy and really wanted to tell his story. But I guess after a certain point, you know, he left me to collaborate with my team uh, and yeah. was, you know, always, I thought, interested and kind of hungry, curious to understand the vision for every scene. Um, and of course, we rehearsed together and we would talk about the performance. But in terms of the sort of aesthetic, the visual world of it, the script, the storytelling, like the score, he, he kind of left me to it. But he was very supportive, you know, as a producer. Will and Arthur Sharp talking the electrical life of Louis Wayne are our next guests on Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> <laughs>